arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Ben is missing and Marco is on the loose. Not the best scenario for Caroline. The clock is ticking on the accident that will destroy Greg's life. And Mickey Muldoon is her only hope. As we come to the end of The River of Fate, I will say that this book ends differently than when I first wrote it. I will go into depth about that at the end of this podcast. Buckle up, because this thing is about to twist and turn and crash and burn and leap tall buildings in a single bound. All within the real and the unreal. Here we go. Ending episode five, The River of Fate by Robert P. Fitton. Chapter 25, 9.22 p.m., December 19th, 1968. Mickey Muldoon's face blazed crimson like his hair when they told him about Ben. In the smoky bar, he put his arms around Caroline and called for his people to bring her over a hot meal. Then she heard him get on the payphone and talk to his friends in Philadelphia. Do you think Ben is dead, Mickey? It sure as hell don't look good. But I'll tell you one thing, Caroline. We're going to find that St. Germain and kill the son of a bitch. I liked Ben, goddammit. They slid a meatloaf and potatoes on the platter in front of her. The steam rose from the spicy food. I can't eat. Eat. You're going to need your strength. I'm going to get my truck. We're going out and the guys are going out. I've already got people looking. Caroline nibbled at the hot meatloaf. My God, Marco could be halfway to Pittsburgh by now. Maybe, said Mickey. I swear to God I'll find him, Caroline. Gil St. Germain ain't going to let him slip out of this one. A few of Mickey's friends to his right all agreed. He's screwed, Al. Gil's gone too far with the kid this time. Ben's dead. Ben's dead, said Caroline. Mickey's face tensed and he pounded the counter. I told Ben we should have had the son of a bitch taken care of, and we could have done it weeks ago, damn it. Caroline set down the fork. She stared at the half-eaten food. Nothing matters now. Okay, look, I'm getting my truck. Let's go find the bastard. A fog settled over Caroline's head as Mickey and his friend Al drove around Reedsville and along the river. The shortwave radio crackled over the speakers. She had thoughts of contacting Greg, but what could he do? No matter what had happened to Ben, she had to follow through with her diversion plan tomorrow afternoon. Near midnight, Mickey pulled the truck into a gas station near the bridge. As the attendant began filling the tank, Mickey turned to Al. I knew the old man St. Germain, and they came here from the city. The old man, where the hell is he now? asked Al. Dead. The whole family came down here because Gilly was here. I tell you, Gil was a bastard and so was the old man. Every damn one of them. They should have stayed the hell in the city. The old lady ain't in town no more. Mickey lit a cigarette and then exhaled. Ha! The old lady. That's another story. Caroline gripped the door handle as she peered beyond the station to the town lights across the river. She had told Ben not to get the gun and then had pleaded with him not to carry it. And now that very gun may have killed him. In her loneliness and pain, she longed for Greg to be by her side. 
The green illuminated clock over the service bay had just passed midnight as Mickey pulled from the station. Before sunrise, Mickey adopted a new strategy of listening to his shortwave, and then he followed the cops as they searched the area. Caroline, even though she drank cup after cup of coffee, leaned against the seat, half awake as Mickey brought the truck at one point 20 miles downriver. As the first sun rays streaked across the hills and stung her eyes, Caroline had little hope. Twelve hours of worry had numbed her senses. She sharpened her thoughts when the AM radio station from New York City reported that an all-points bulletin on Marco St. Germain now extended through ten states. I don't even think the bastard left the area. I'd bet my life on it, said Mickey. She spoke in a sober voice. You really think he's still around Reedsville? Oh, you bet your ass he is. Just waiting for Gil to somehow bail him out. But it ain't going to work this time. The kid's going to be put away. Marco's propensity toward violence and his evil disposition had surfaced into a new crime. His cunning smile and deadly eyes loomed in her thoughts during those early morning hours. Now he seemed invincible. Mickey returned to Muldoon's after sunrise and walked Caroline to a second-floor room. When he shut the door, she collapsed, face down on the mattress. The cataclysmic events made her light-headed and the room spun. Maybe the gypsy would bring her back to 1993. Images of the woman's stark white hair and the dark eyes on the East Greenwich Bridge battered Caroline's cluttered mind. Reality mixed with imagination during long periods of near-consciousness and vivid recall. She awakened to the sound of people talking loudly in the bar. The sunlit shades made it impossible to figure out just how long she had been out. According to the wall calendar, December 20th, 1968 had arrived. She leaped from the small bed and ran to the balcony overlooking the bar. Then she checked her watch. 11.55 a.m., December 20th, 1968. She held her fingers to her aching temples as she returned to the room and walked and walked past some of the boxes containing her things from Canterbury Street. Greg's red and black high school yearbook was stuffed into their suitcase next to the bed. She picked it up and glanced at the calendar, then hurled the yearbook into the trash. Wasting no time, she showered and changed into jeans and a sweatshirt. She left the room and descended the wooden stairs. Mickey waited behind the bar. His fallen face and slower speech indicated a problem. He told her someone had spotted chrome shining in the river near the boat ramp. They had possibly found Marco's car. Special trucks were brought in and would pull the wreckage from the river. Mickey grabbed his coat and prepared to leave for the ramp. Despite what she might find, Caroline insisted on accompanying him, certain she would be at the high school before the accident. But the image of Ben, submerged in the river, stuck in her mind as Mickey brought the truck to Muldoon's front entrance. Then he zipped from the parking lot and headed toward the bridge. Below a sky of wispy clouds, numerous cars and trucks were parked haphazardly behind the riverbank's twisted bushes, and clusters of onlookers had gathered on the brown sandy shore. An oversized red and white tow truck had thick cables that extended into the swift moving water. The engine revved and the cable moved slightly. Caroline closed her eyes and prayed Ben had been spared. She climbed from Mickey's well heated truck into the cold air and wandered with him through the crowd. Even television film crews from Philadelphia and one from New York City had cameras pointed at the water. Mickey stopped to say something to a few people and then moved forward. 
Someone handed her a warm styrofoam cup of coffee, and she stared at the shimmering river. When the breeze diminished, the surface deepened to a greenish hue. She sipped on the sour coffee and checked her watch. 12.30 p.m., December 20th, 1968. Gil St. Germain's distinctive voice cut the morning air. He held a shortwave microphone back at one of Reedsville's black-and-white cruisers. His foot balanced on the inside open door, he yelled loudly. Mickey reached the cruiser and stood next to the lieutenant. Gil placed the microphone back on the dash hook. Mickey's clear voice lashed out at Gil. It's all your damn fault, Gil! What are you saying, Mickey? How many damn times did you bail him out? How many times should he have gone to jail? How many people has he hurt because you took care of things? Gil said nothing and walked away from the cruiser. You're a coward, Gil, and so is your brother. Gil circumvented the crowd and paralleled the river back to the tow truck. He climbed up to the cab and had words with the driver as Mickey rumbled back toward Caroline. Gil jumped down and conferred with two cops at the front of the truck. I heard what you said to him. Not half as much as what I'm gonna say. He shielded his eyes toward the tow truck as the whining motor echoed in the chilled winter air. Gears shifted and the cables moved from below the bleak water. Caroline's hand shook as she stared at the churning river. A chrome bumper materialized through the murky river, and as the water dripped off the cables, a maroon trunk rose upward. The 442 emerged like a behemoth from the deep and soon angled up to the cloud-swept sky. Water sloshed around the interior and then poured out the open windows. Mickey put his arm around Caroline and then moved over toward a few cops, including Gil St. Germain, next to the car as it bounced onto the asphalt ramp. Little streams drained back into the river as Mickey warned Caroline to stay back. He then faced Gil before approaching the car window, paused, and then lowered his head. He kicked the riverbank gravel and then rushed Gil. Screw you, Gil! Screw you! As the cold wind blew off the water, he rubbed his hand over his mouth. He wiped his eye as he returned to Caroline. I know he's gone, Mickey. There's only one body in there. Where's Marco? Where the hell is Marco? I don't know. The guy is responsible for the death of the two closest people in the world to me. Two people? What the hell are you talking about? She closed her eyes for a moment. Nothing. Forget it. Gil St. Germain dipped inside the cruiser and then closed the door. Another cop spun the tires in the mud. That dirty bastard. Caroline again climbed inside Mickey's truck and pounded the dash as she cried. She called out Ben's name as the green coroner's van backed precariously through the crowd toward the 442. A reporter gripped a microphone and announced to the camera that one body had drowned inside the car. Tears soaked her coat, but her fist hurt as she wailed. As Mickey opened his door, she grabbed the passenger side handle and leaped outside. From behind, Mickey called her name as she ran toward the green van. The reporter stopped speaking as she passed. Ben's army boots stuck out of one of the bloodied sheets. Mickey caught her before she reached the body. Caroline, it ain't gonna change nothing. You don't need to see this. I loved him, Mickey. Ben shouldn't have died. Come on, let's get back to the truck. This is gonna do you no good, Caroline. With cold tears on her cheeks, she watched the two young men lift the gurney with Ben under the sheets into the van. Mickey placed his arm behind her and escorted her to the truck's open door. 2.48 p.m. December 20th, 1968. I need to go to the high school. You what? 
I have to see Greg about all of this. What you need is to drive with me over to Atherton's funeral home and make the arrangements. You don't understand, Mickey. I have to see Greg. What I understand, Caroline, is Ben is dead, and it would be shit to his memory if you just left things hanging. I'm bringing you to Atherton's. Maybe there are things you just don't know, Mickey. Get me over to the goddamn high school. Mickey lit a cigarette and tossed the match out the window. It won't take more than 15 minutes to talk with Stevie Atherton and at least find a casket for Ben and a place to bury him. You probably don't have a plot, do you? How the hell would I have a plot? I'm just trying to help you. The only frigging thing I need, Mickey, is to be at that school before 4.30. Mickey inhaled and brought the truck onto the highway. I know this is a god-awful thing, but getting to that school at 4.30 is bullshit. I'll be the judge of that. Mickey stuck the cigarette out the corner of his mouth. Jesus Christ, Caroline. Marco needs to die, Mickey. I'll get Ben a plot, and then we'll find the son of a bitch, St. Germain. I promise you that. Chapter 26 3.10 p.m., December 20th, 1968. Caroline fidgeted in a high-back green chair inside one of the gaudy funeral parlor's viewing rooms. A cherrywood grandfather clock's brass pendulum swayed back and forth. In 40 minutes, she had to meet Greg at the gym lobby doors. She reasoned Mickey could cover the distance to the school in less than 10 minutes. Mickey exited the men's room as she paced the thick red rug. Clenching her fists, she met him before he even entered the room. Mickey, where the hell is this guy? We've been in here for an hour and a half, damn it. He has people in his office, Caroline. We're the ones coming in here with no appointment. I have to meet Greg at the school. Well, bullshit. He spoke in a lower but abrasive voice. What's so damned important about meeting Greg at the school? 24 minutes past 3. If Atherton isn't out here in one minute, one minute, I will go in and get him out. Oh, crap. At the far end, the bald-headed Atherton, neatly clad in his black suit and bright blue tie, finished an appointment with a grieving family. Caroline broke away and stomped across the rug before Atherton had concluded. I need to look at caskets. Atherton, taken aback by her interruption, stayed calm, shaking hands with the other family members, and they moved toward the front entrance. He tugged at his dark mustache, glanced at Mickey, and then smiled graciously at Caroline. I was sorry to hear about your uncle, Miss Thatcher. You have my condolences and the condolences of my brothers. I don't have much time, Mr. Atherton. The clock chimed at the half hour. Jesus, God! I see. The phone rang in his office. Excuse me. Caroline rolled her eyes, breathing deeply as she spun around and shook her head. I don't believe this. The grief will pass, said Mickey. No, that's not it. It's not the damned grief. She marched toward the front glass door. Darkness descended across the state highway beyond the parking lot. Over the hill, beady headlights passed over the bridge. She turned. Atherton was still blabbing away on the phone. 3.31 p.m. I can do all this later, Mickey. What you hurry about getting back to the school? At that moment, Atherton walked from his office, 
briefly apologized and stood before Caroline with his hands behind his back. Look, get me a contract or whatever you need to do, I'll sign the thing. Pick out the casket you think is best. I have to go. Mickey shrugged his shoulders. If that's the way you want it, Miss Thatcher, I'll talk to my secretary if that is what you wish. Jesus, God, yes! Atherton entered his office, but she turned to Mickey. Didn't I make myself clear, Mickey? Didn't I? Oh, there's no doubt about that. Atherton called his secretary. Marge, come in here, please. A rotund lady with steely hair and a purple skirt tiptoed from the back office. Yes, Mr. Atherton. That's it, Mickey. We're out of here. Marge, I need contract papers for Miss Thatcher here. Yes, Mr. Atherton. They're in my office. I'll be right back. Caroline sat upright on the leather sofa. She crossed her legs, balancing an elbow on one knee and covering her eyes with the other hand. Her leg vibrated like an engine pushed to the brink, and she tapped her fingers on the sofa arm. The clock steadily ticked toward 4.30. When the secretary did not return, Caroline sprang from the sofa and headed toward the office. Atherton ripped the papers off the secretary's desk, swung them through the air, and pulled out a gold pen as he walked toward Caroline. Where do I sign? He set the papers on an adjacent polished coffee table and pointed to the last line on the fourth page. She took the pen, scrawled her name quickly, and left the pen on the paper. We'd be glad to choose a suitable casket for Mr. Thatcher. Five minutes to four. Mickey, I need to get over the school. I'll never meet him now. Mickey thanked Atherton and chased Caroline as she crashed through the two aluminum-framed glass doors up front. Even if she did not meet Greg at the lobby, she still might have time to stop the accident. Mickey smoked a cigarette and became unusually quiet inside the truck. He backed from the lot, pulled onto the state highway, and had not driven more than a few hundred yards when bright headlights flashed into the truck. Caroline turned. Mickey grabbed the mirror as a huge, oversized green truck cab came precariously close. What the hell is this now? Stupid bastard! He waved the guy off in the mirror and pulled to the side, but the truck matched his move. Mickey accelerated, but so did the truck, tapping his bumper. Caroline leaned against the window and stared into the extended side mirror. It's him! I know it's him! Who? Mickey slapped the pedal and they raced up the hill. Mac truck! A Mac truck! She peered into the blinding headlights. Marco, I know Marco St. Germain is in that truck. Do you see him? Mickey shielded his eyes to the mirror. He's trying to prevent me from stopping the accident. Accident? What accident? He veered to the left, across the highway, and onto a wooded side road. The Mack truck's air brakes whooshed as the truck turned and tailed Mickey over the bumpy road through rows of trees. I have to get to the school. School? We're fighting for our lives here against that stupid fool. Mickey, you have to get me to the school. They bounced over several potholes, but the pursuing truck maneuvered easily and again threatened from behind. Mickey spun the tires, kicking up the dirt. He veered into another wooded road and told her they were heading back toward town. The mammoth green truck lurked close when they emerged near Greg's apartment in the cemetery. To her right, the lights twinkled along the river and the illuminated school clock tower shone over the trees in the creeping darkness. She turned to Mickey's dash clock, 4.10 p.m. 
Mickey gained speed on the hardest surface and accelerated toward the school. The truck, pursuing less than 10 feet behind, continuously sounded its air horn and slammed against Mickey's bumper. Jolted against the metal dash, Caroline screamed as her head hit the windshield. Only Marco would drive that truck and try to kill her. She checked the dashboard clock again and thought about Greg crashing into the backboards for 11 p.m. Mickey, undeterred, fishtailed away from the truck and zoomed through the center of town. Binghamton's flew by as the larger truck shadowed them again. Mickey then applied the brakes, spinning in a complete circle. He fought to control his truck and hurtled onto the sidewalk before pointing his truck toward the high school hill. Then he skidded forward like a race car driver. The Mack truck chased him with its air horn blasting. That stupid son of a bitch! He rammed Mickey's rear bumper and Caroline extended her hands against the dash. The larger truck edged forward and sideswiped Mickey's truck. She held her throbbing head and wondered how she would ever get into the school. I'll fix this bastard. Mickey jammed his foot against the accelerator, pushing Caroline back in the vinyl seat, and they shot like a pinball up the high school hill. The huge truck kept pace. Then Mickey bashed his foot against the brake pedal. The truck sailed by, the air horn crescendo tapering off up the hill. Pull right onto the cement, yelled Caroline, pointing toward the quadrangle in the school entrance. Mickey slid diagonally across the quadrangle as the cab's air brakes gushed at the street. The humongous cab rotated like a tank in battle. He's coming back! We'll hold him off! She leaped from Mickey's truck without closing the door and sprinted onto the quadrangle. The cab engine roared. Metal crunched and glass shattered over the granite slabs. The larger truck pushed Mickey's pickup into the trees. She raced up the granite steps and clawed at the entrance doors. Marco St. Germain leaped from the truck cab and ran across the quadrangle. She pounded on the wood doors. No! No! Someone opened the door and she slipped across the dimly lit rotunda. Then she ran past the closed administration office doors, knowing she had to reach the gym before Marco caught her. As she neared the gym corridor, Marco, now inside the school, shouted her name over and over again. Fearing he would get her before she stopped the accident, she darted into a side classroom. But she had trouble navigating in the dim light. She caught her foot on the anchored desk leg and fell forward onto the wood floor. Ahead, the crowd cheered in the gymnasium as she scrambled across the dusty floorboards and into an adjoining classroom. She had risked everything by going to that funeral home with Mickey. You can't help him now, yelled Marco from the corridor. She froze and tiptoed quietly into the next room. Then she slipped into the gym corridor and ran toward the wire mesh lobby doors. Her stomach cramped as she kept moving, but Marco, too, had entered the gym corridor. It's all over, Caroline. You blew it. He's gonna crack his head. She slammed into the locked doors and rebounded onto the corridor tiles. Once again on her feet, she shook the wire mesh glass and ran toward the empty gym lobby. Marco raced down the sloping corridor. I'm going to kill you, lovely lady, just like I killed the old man. Caroline ripped the fire extinguisher off the wall. Then she rotated toward the sprinting Marco. She squeezed the metal trigger, backed up, and sprayed a cloud of cold, foggy gas into the corridor air. 
Marco shielded his eyes, coughed, and backtracked to the lockers. Then she rolled the fire extinguisher like a tree log, and Marco lost his footing. She darted into the dimly lit cafeteria and dodged the long tables. Marco appeared inside the kitchen. You're a dead woman now, Caroline. Caroline whipped into a narrow hallway with a heavy electrical room door at the end. She slipped but kept her balance and grabbed the handle latch. Straining, she slid open the metal door, ran inside, and pushed it shut. In the darkness, she fumbled for the deadbolt, latching it securely, and swung her hands along the cinder blocks. She pushed a light switch, and a single, clear, glowing tungsten bulb illuminated the dozens of metal wall panels housing every electrical pathway in the school. Marco kicked the door. With each successive thud, the door loosened. She frantically scanned every labeled electrical circuit as Marco, his voice muffled through the thick metal, repeatedly threatened to kill her. I'm going to kill I'm going you, to lovely, kill lady. you lovely lady. I'm going to I'm kill, going to you, kill lovely you, lovely lady. You're dead, You're dead Caroline. She could not locate the gym circuit switch, and with the door jarring loose at the deadbolt, she grasped the huge lever controlling the power to the entire school. She leaped like a trapeze artist, arms extended in the air, and swung forward like a trapeze artist, arms extended in the air, and grasped onto the power switch. The switch moved downward and she bounced off the wall. The overhead bulb above went out. A strong electrical current shook her body, throwing her to the cement. A myriad of magenta and ultraviolet electrical bolts danced randomly over the lever and spread across the panels. Smaller capillary charges surrounded her body, vibrating and encircling the room. The static moved through her hair, and she became weightless, wondering if she had died. Her body numbed as all around her the charges crackled. She no longer heard Marco at the door as she floated through the dissolving darkness. Every nerve ending in her body tingled. Unable to distinguish between consciousness and nothingness, she sank deeper into an all-encompassing euphoria. Hours might have passed, or maybe only minutes, but she finally sensed the concrete. Sprawled across the cooler floor in the stuffy darkness, her body physically taxed, Caroline crawled on her stomach toward the light around the outer door's edge. Her skin stung like sunburn when she stood and looked at her cracked watch. She did not know if she had stopped the accident, and why did light surround the doorframe? She waited for the longest time and then dragged the deadbolt across the metal. Fresher air filtered into the room when she slid open the door. A cluster of shelves, tables and chairs, and discarded desks filled the outside corridor. She snapped a broom handle and held it in the air as she climbed over the desks and panned the cafeteria for Marco. Her thoughts centered around the accident and whether she had saved Greg from his doomed fate. Chapter 27 Caroline discarded the broom handle and ripped a metal bracket off the shelves. Bright sunshine shot around the perimeter of the plywood boards covering the outside windows. She clawed her way over the desks and chairs and squinted. The smell of cut grass filtered inside as she peered through the crack in the plywood. A stiff wind ruffled the green tree branches outside. She dropped the bracket and it clanged against the floor tiles. 
she retreated into the deserted corridor. Classrooms were empty and more windows were hidden with plywood. She easily pushed open the same wire mesh doors outside the gym lobby. Long boards were nailed across the outside lobby doors. The display case and the Coke machine were gone, and through the gym doors, hundreds of blue and white storage barrels, boxes, and more desks and chairs were scattered around the gym. An open trench cut into the wood floor under the far backboard. Unable to move outside through the boarded doors, she returned down the gym corridor and headed for the rotunda. But as she ran her fingers along the grimy abandoned lockers, she noticed a new wall with a thermal door built in across the rotunda entrance. She rolled her eyes when she discovered it also locked, then she rapped on the metal. A middle-aged woman dressed in a t-shirt and jeans opened the door. An air-conditioned burst surrounded her. Small offices with computers, a fax machine, and push-button telephones now lined the rotunda. How did you get back there? I guess I'm lost, answered Caroline with a half-smile. Are you all right? I think I need to sit down. The woman brought her inside. Caroline's eyes watered as she sat next to a desk near a large gurgling water cooler. The woman handed her a paper cup full of cool water. Caroline gazed outside as the water soothed her mouth. The spreading trees out front were gone, and the quadrangled slabs paved into a parking lot. Unbelievable. They've abandoned the school. Oh, you're coming back to town. Anyone who graduated from Revere is kind of shocked that the town would actually build a new school across the river. And this is just a storage place now? Administration came over here in 87, before my time. I just moved into town. As far as the rest of the school, they just keep dumping just about everything in town over here. One big dumpster. Caroline nodded as the woman sat on the edge of her desk. But the computer flashed the date. June 15, 1993. Caroline stood and crossed the room. June 15, 1993? Jesus, God! Are you all right? I need to know, said Caroline. You need to know what? I'm sorry, you're getting me a little confused. Greg Provost, what happened to him? Well, like I say, I don't know the local people. I just moved to Reedsville. I need to go to the new school or to Binghamton's, Caroline ran to the window. Binghamton's? I did hear about Binghamton's. Used to be a nice department store downtown, but I guess the Riverside Mall just killed it. It's a vacant lot now. Caroline's throat tightened as she backed toward the front door. I have to go. Listen, we don't work all day during the summer if you need a ride. Caroline said nothing, her eyes crazed as she thrust open the front door. Warm air whipped against her face as she hopped onto the cement-patched granite steps. Her hair furrowed in the wind as she ran across the asphalt. Trees had once graced this quadrangle, and now she shielded her eyes to the sunshine and the wind. Even the clock tower had vanished over time, and sheets of plywood, like tattered eye patches, covered the middle building windows. Spray-painted orange and black graffiti adored the gym's yellow bricks, and the upper windows were broken. Caroline's emotions sent her into an anxiety-provoked panic. She leaped over the gym parking lot sinkholes. Grass and wildflowers had pushed through the asphalt cracks and rippled in the gusts of wind. She had no real destination, 
As, they ex as she exited the school grounds, she wanted to locate the new high school. As she jogged into the wind along the uneven sidewalks toward the cemetery road in Greg's old apartment, she wondered if they had buried Ben on the cemetery hill. Mickey might be an old man by now or dead himself. She would head down to Muldoon's once she had seen Ben's grave. Dirt swirled into the air as she entered the cemetery's front arch, but she glanced at Greg's apartment. The blue vinyl siding had faded and cracked and pieces were missing. The paved driveway and an addition constructed to the side showed the passage of time. Across the valley, the sun poked through billowing clouds, swelling upward to the steely sky. She glided over the cemetery's buzz-cut grass and passed under the ruffling tree branches. A gray-haired, tattooed groundskeeper with an earring in his left ear worked up ahead. I need to find a grave. Ben Thatcher. He cupped his hand to his ear and let his weed trimmer drop to the grass. <laughs> Sorry, that stupid wind. There's a bad front moving in. I need to find Ben Thatcher's grave. Ah, Thatcher, yeah, I know where Ben Thatcher is. Been cutting grass here for 20 years. She followed him to a tree cluster up back near the fence. Then he pointed to the small gray stone, Thatcher. Caroline knelt down, too drained to cry, and stared at the stone in the ground below. Ben had been buried in the earth almost 25 years, but the larger pink stone to her right commanded her attention. Sunlight flashed over the stone. Mickey Muldoon, April 19, 1917, October 10, 1983. She thanked the groundskeeper as a bright little red convertible, white top raised, approached on the cemetery road. The woman from the school office slowly pulled up to the graves. Miss, you mentioned you wanted to go over to the new high school. Come on, get in. Caroline studied Ben's grave one final time opened the door and then slid across the car's white vinyl interior. Why are you helping me? I have to go to the high school for some files, and you mentioned going over there. She circled the cemetery road and then crossed back to Main Street. Well, there's a tornado front coming in here from Ohio. By the way, I'm Sue Wyndham. Caroline Thatcher. Mickey Muldoon, he's dead. I guess the locals weren't very happy when they raised Muldoon's. Now it's a hangout for all those commuters from Philadelphia. Muldoon's Restaurante. It's a moneymaker, though. New and improved. Sue described the town's changed face. A two-story mall, glistening amidst the gray clouds, dominated the forested hills across the river. Sue pointed to the high school, as extensive as the mall, on the other side of the state road. The original green arch bridge had survived the local traffic. A new steel and concrete girder bridge span replaced the old bridge and allowed faster travel over the luminescent river below. An odd orange sunlight covered the town and valley as black clouds filled the western sky. Caroline gazed back at the decaying high school building atop the hill. Ahead, Main Street, bumpier and in need of repair, had many storefronts boarded up or gone. More elaborate graffiti marked the territorial boundary along crumbling buildings with barred windows. From a distance, she saw an empty grassy lot where Binghamton's had once stood. They say they're going to build a big courthouse on that lot. All those people who worked there back then, the whole way of life, it's gone. 
The block appeared as if it had been under siege and shelled from an unseen enemy. The once premier store in Reedsville, Pennsylvania, now had been demolished to a few jagged brick walls, skeletal partitions, and mixed debris amidst the tall grass blades. Caroline marveled at the four-story complex at the corner, formerly Muldoon's Bar, now complete with bright neon signs, huge glass spans extending skyward. BMW sedans and SUVs packed the oversized parking lot. At least Mickey had never lived to see this change. Sue veered right and sped up the new state highway ramp and traversed the Emmitsburg River on the new bridge. The sun hid behind the clouds and the hills looked frozen in the silver light. The new bridge support beams had obliterated the boat ramp where they removed Marco's 442 from the water. She thought about Greg's red supersport and how he would have enjoyed driving the car along the long sloping road to the new high school. The sun emerged and highlighted an athletic field house, an outdoor track, and a baseball field. Red and black signs neatly marked everything. Houses had neatly trimmed lawns and rows of lofty aluminum pole lamps graced the center median. She chuckled at the sophistication. Sue circled around a wide looping drive and stopped under a canopy. The flag flapped in the wind as she turned. Thank you so much. Well, you looked as if you were lost. Caroline stepped from the car and spoke over the powerful wind gust. I just have to find out one thing. Sue nodded as Caroline rushed under the canopy and the front doors buzzed. She straightened her wind-blown hair as a little man with tinted glasses moved from the principal's office to meet her. When she asked about the basketball area, he produced a map of the school campus and directed her to the field house attached to Building C. She followed his instructions, hurrying to the left and along a blue-striped line to Building C. They had become so organized, designating and categorizing everything. Three minutes later, she neared a wide-arched entrance to a circular lobby, a glorified and updated version of the old revered gym lobby across town. Somewhere in the many showcases lining the outer rim, she might find Greg's high school statistics. She passed numerous football and track cases, but a large framed poster of Greg drew her attention to the far wall. He wore a blue and gold UCLA uniform, and three cases were devoted to his college and professional career. She raised her hands to her mouth, and a smile ascended her bewildered face. Caroline tearfully read the laminated newspaper articles and the prepared biography. Not only had Greg done well in college, but a team in San Francisco drafted him, and he spent 14 years playing in the NBA. The tears overflowed as she nodded. Action pictures from his game and another photo, taken maybe in his thirties, lined the brick wall. He stood in this very lobby, shaking hands with school officials, an aged coach Miskinis, and a group of high school athletes. She stepped back and wiped her eyes. June 15, 1993. He might remember to meet her in the park. Caroline turned and Sue stood with a stack of folders in her hand. Find what you were looking for? I did. Could I ask you a favor? Sure. Could you bring me to the park across the river? I thought you might need a ride somewhere else. Caroline held her arm. It is June 15, 1993, right? That's today's date. 
Venturing to the park meant risking heartache. By his presence, Greg would indicate whether their relationship, so many autumns ago, either had a deeper meaning or it vanished with time. Chapter 28, 1.55 p.m., July 15, 1993. The park had not altogether changed since 1968. A yellow jogger strip followed the widened asphalt road and the paved side parking areas. Trees in her mind as mere shrubs now towered over the road. Others had been cut or fallen down. Sue veered into the parking lot above the rock. Caroline again thanked her as she exited the car and faced the wind as she hurried down the hill. Scruffy trees and bushes had overgrown the wooded shore, but the weathered rock endured. She neared the edge as Sue's red car sped along the park road across the lake. The waves smacked the shore and ripples followed the wind gusts across the lake. Caroline crawled onto the rock but had difficulty maintaining her balance. The forest now blocked the area near the waterfalls. <clears throat> she jumped from the rock and jogged along the shore toward the tree cluster. The sun blazed over a few runners below the spreading branches, and the sound of water twisting and gushing over the rocks grew louder. The foliage still obscured the entire bridge. Why would Greg come back? More than likely, he had a wife and family. At least his future had changed but at the expense of Ben's life and any potential relationship with her. She stopped before she reached the clearing, studied her pearl ring, and gazed around the area where they walked 25 years ago. Now ecological pamphlets were aligned in plastic holders and pressure-treated map stations were conveniently placed along the trail. She looked up at the swirling black clouds. For the longest time, she did not have the courage to approach the clearing. People still fed the ducks on the water's edge. More joggers crisscrossed the afternoon sunlight along the park road. They had only marginally rebuilt the waterfall bridge where she and Greg had kissed. The longing for him became sweetened by the passage of all the years. A voice carried in the wind. Lina! Lina! On the distant side of the waterfall, a dark-haired man in a black tuxedo emerged from the surrounding boulders and waved in slow motion. Behind him, a white-stretched limo had pulled onto the grass near the road. Greg! He climbed onto the bridge, shaking the boards as he bounded across with long-stemmed roses cradled in his arms. She broke into a run. He appeared much younger and fit than she had remembered in Chicago, his hair brown and no glasses. She cut across the grass and into his arms as he dropped the flowers and hoisted her skyward. He kissed her lips rapidly, then longer, with an unbridled intensity stored within him for years. He had to speak loudly above the wind. I knew it was true. Look at you, Caroline. You're still only 32. You look like you did back then. I am the same, Greg. He kissed her again. You didn't disappear after Ben died. You were telling me the truth about being from the future. He reached down and picked up the roses and carefully placed them in her arms. And you believed me when I asked you to come back here. Well, you kept telling me, but I didn't understand until time went by. Presidents all elected and resigned, just like you said. She put her arms around him. 
I never thought I'd see you again. They walked back to the bridge and leaned on the waterfall railing. I was in my office, trying to convince myself why I shouldn't come back here. I mean, with all the evidence and what you told me. But all the evidence was there. You have an office in San Francisco? She asked and then smiled. I do public relations for retired athletes. My God, I'm so proud of you, Greg. She hugged him again. You mean with second careers? Right. I needed to do something after I retired, and well, exploring a million things, I realized I had built a database. I went home. I live in Carmel up north. His eyes had the same sparkle as when he was in high school. I almost canceled my flight. You reasoned it out. No. He looked into her eyes and held her shoulders. I just knew it. What happened to Marco? Now the sun went away and the air cooled. They found him in Kentucky. He was brought back and convicted of Ben's murder. She closed her eyes and tried not to cry. Then he held her. Greg, on my timeline, I saw them drag Ben's body from the river less than four hours ago. He squinted. I think I understand, and I'm so sorry. Marco is locked away for life. I was in the electrical room at the school no more than a few hours ago. How is this possible? Listen, the arrangements are done. All we have to do is get back to the airport, and then we'll go away from this place. Well, I won't argue with that. He put his arm around her, and they pranced over to the footbridge. Caroline, because of you, I'm a lucky man. I've made considerable investments. Before I retired, I got into real estate. My connections are on the West Coast, where I played ball. They descended the railroad tie steps and crossed the lawn toward the limo. But she stopped and placed her hand on his shoulder. Did you ever marry? Greg pressed his lips. How do I tell you, the person I care about most in the world, that I did marry somebody else? Ten years after you disappeared. The divorce came back in 80. No one compares with you, Lina. You're the one who's been in my thoughts for the past 25 years. I just want to be with you. That's all that's important now, and I don't have a clue as to why or how this is all possible. She heard the limo engine start and planted her arm firmly around Greg as they started back across the grass again. I'm proud of you, Greg. So proud. Greg smiled as they neared the limo, his eyes reflecting an inner peace as he again lifted her into the air. She flew gracefully as if she were a bird in the open sky. He slowly set her down and gazed into her eyes. We're going back to my place in San Francisco and start a new life. I've never been to San Francisco. You can put all this behind you. She smiled and they strolled toward the limo. Greg looked toward the limo driver and then opened the rear door himself. He took her hand and helped her inside the most spacious car interior she had ever seen. She slid over a smooth almond leather seat and settled back in the cooler air. A bar extended out from a side panel and a television on the headset rest beamed in the news. Greg sat beside her and closed the door himself. Greg, I, I, I'm sorry, said the young driver, his chestnut eyes nervously volleying from side to side. Oh, don't be, Jackie. You've been waiting here all day long, too. Now we're ready to roll. Get us to the airport and we'll be all set. I don't think I can do that, Greg. 
Greg reached for a green bottle of chilled champagne and fiddled with the wire cage over the cork. What's the matter? Problem with the limo? In the mirror, Caroline studied the driver's eyes, still bouncing back and forth around the car. His face tensed and he kept twisting his mouth. There's no problem with the limo, Greg. Okay then, let's get out of here. But I... As Caroline continued to study his face in the mirror, the black evil eyes of Marco St. Germain, like a dark moon rising over the horizon, appeared above the passenger's side seat. Wrinkles were deep-set across his unshaven face, and his dark hair had thinned. Caroline recoiled in the seat, quickly clutching Greg. Surprise, Greg. Look who's back in town. He had lost a front tooth, and it affected his pronunciation. His slower voice had a demented, almost crazed quality. In his right hand, he held a large handgun, and ammunition rounds were strapped over his olive camouflage jersey. All the while, he kept grinning. Why is he here, Greg? Greg slowly set the champagne bottle back in its stainless steel container. So, you figured it all out, Marco. Marco St. Germain rises from the dead, he said, his yellow teeth scalloped out of his frayed gums. You killed my uncle, shouted Caroline. The old man came after me with a gun. I tried to tell the jury, but nobody wanted to listen, lovely lady. But I never forget. Twenty-five years have passed, but I remember. Marco rolled his eyes upward with laughter, and the inner tension seemed to bubble out of his tormented soul as he waved the gun in the air. Don't do it, Marco, said Greg. Marco leaned forward. Not turning out the way you had hoped, eh, Gregory? I checked this out. I called the state prison people. You were still serving the sentence, and you blew an opportunity you had for parole with your belligerent attitude. Oh, I'm aware of how you used your influence. How my parole was denied, Greg, old friend. Well, I have influence, too. Twenty-five long years in the slammer, and you make a lot of friends. You gain seniority. He pushed the gun barrel to Jackie's temple. Jackie closed his eyes, and Greg's temper flared. Stop right there, Marco. What the hell do you think you're doing? Shut up, Greg. Bring us back to Reedsville, Jack-o'-lantern. The limo rolled forward, but Marco refused to remove the gun from the driver's head. You have nothing to gain by this little abduction, Marco. Oh, I have everything to gain, Mr. Big Success. The limo dipped on the asphalt and Jackie pulled onto the park road. Greg leaned forward, but Marco produced a snub-nosed gun in his other hand and swung the smaller gun at Greg. Greg, do as he says, cried Caroline, pulling him back. How many more lives are you going to ruin? Ah, uh, only two that I can think of, lovely lady. Again, he laughed. You misjudge me, lovely lady. I'm a savior of lives, a victim of circumstances because you had to tinker with history. Marco directed the driver onto the state highway, and the limo traced the road along the river. All the while, he detailed his time behind bars and blamed them both for his imprisonment. You know what it's like being jammed into some little cubbyhole cell for years? Goddamn years? You murdered my uncle, creep. 
His eyes opened and he gritted his rotting teeth. You're going to join the old man real soon, lovely lady. You get used and abused inside the can, turned into an animal. You know what I mean? That old man tried to kill me. You're a liar, Marco, said Greg. Where are you bringing us? Oh, you'll see, California boy. You'll see. They'll track you down, Marco. They must be combing the countryside for you right now. Look, I have money. You know that. I can get you away from here. No one will ever find you. <laughs> Don't need your money, pro boy. It took me 25 years to think this through. I dreamed about this day and night. Planned it and made my contacts. You told me about today's date, Greg, and how the lovely lady wanted to meet you back in the park. I knew you would both be here today. Years of kissing ass and doing whatever they wanted, just so I could join your little party. Greg rubbed his tightened fist over his mouth as he looked out the tinted window. Marco claimed that his future escape from the country had been prearranged. After passing Binghamton's vacant lot, he directed Jackie, still under the gun, up the old high school hill, and then his eyes focused on Caroline. You were in the school this morning, lovely lady. I saw you looking into the gym. You were there? Are you bringing us back to the old Revere? asked Greg. Marco gazed down at the champagne bottle. Time to go home, pro boy. Such poor man is Gregory. Open the champagne. Pop it. Greg stared until Marco pushed the smaller gun over the seat, and the limo sped up the bumpy high school hill. Caroline gripped Greg's hand as he turned toward her. With his brow furrowed and his eyes intense, he removed the bottle from the container and ripped off the wire cage. Then he peeled back the paper. He used the cloth napkin to twist off the plastic cork, and a quick pop followed a misty spray. He grabbed the glasses and poured the champagne. Handing a half-full glass to Caroline, he raised his own glass into the air. Ot vium invenium, ot facium. What the hell does that mean? You were never too bright, Marco, since you obviously aren't man enough to pull this off. He shook the smaller gun. I possess the weapons, Mr. Smarty Pants. Caroline feared Marco would begin shooting as Greg kept laughing. You're a loser, Marco. You couldn't even kill Ben without screwing it up. You've screwed up everything you've ever done. Shut up. The savvy Marco seemed to sense Greg's ploy. He quickly regained his composure and placed dark sunglasses over his eyes. Then he ordered Jackie to turn left at the old school. The new office entrance and the parking lot were to her right as they turned. Marco laughed at Greg and then projected his voice like an announcer on a voiceover. Welcome back to the superstar. I wasn't a superstar. Greg, provost class of 1969, has returned. Greg, of course, won high honors for his basketball prowess here at Reedsville in the 1960s. Shut up, Marco. For his outstanding play on and off the court. He continued laughing at his own jokes. 
Caroline had never seen this side of the school. In the breeze, the massive older tree branches scratched the taller building's yellow brick facade and faded plywood-covered windows. Marco demanded to go around back. They hit a pothole stretch between the long cracked cement dock attached to the main building. Why don't you put down the guns, Marco, and fight it out like a man? Unless you plain don't have the guts. Greg's face reflected in the sunglasses. Very good, Gregory. You've come a long way in plotting game strategy. The limo pitched like a boat on the ocean. Marco rubbed the gum barrel under his nose. But I've dreamed about this scenario for years. I have hundreds of times put myself in your shoes, or should I say your sneakers. I've worked too long for this to have it ruined now. You only end up hurting yourself, said Caroline. You only hurt the one you love, lovely lady. And this is the ever-famous Paul Revere High School, the original building still gracing the local topography. First construction completed in 1927 and later expanded in 1932. Its prominent yellow bricks were considered to be of local origin. Notice the 52-foot clock tower. Gone, Marco, said Greg. Hmm, this could ruin my travelogue. Marco, listen to me, said Greg, speaking slowly. Jackie, just pull over to that loading dock, said Marco. Marco, there is something more I can offer you. <laughs> something more than revenge? I don't think so, Gregory. Straight cash. I know you're planning to disappear and have it all arranged. Fine. Just let us go and you take the cash. Don't taunt me, superstar. I will give you... You're giving me nothing but suffering and pain. Both of you. Now you'll both pay the price for your so-called love. Jackie carefully parked the limo along the cement dock. Marco ordered the engine shut off and took away the keys. Caroline looked at the faded green school door and the dilapidated roof above the dock. As she turned toward Greg, Marco fired the large weapon once and the driver's head exploded into a mass of brain tissue and bones. Blood and brain matter sprayed onto the window. You bastard! cried Greg and he dove into the front seat. One weapon flew against the windshield and bounced back into the seat. Mako's sunglasses fell onto the seat as Greg grabbed his wrist. He clawed and scraped his way over the seat. Marco lifted the smaller gun to Greg's cheek. Greg froze, and Caroline thought Marco might kill him right there. This man did nothing, yelled Caroline. The dead driver's body, gaping wound in his skull, slouched against the outside door. Marco, in possession of both weapons again, reached back and kicked the passenger door open. He rolled outside, all the while keeping the guns trained on Caroline and Greg. That was a damn stupid move, Greg. Now both of you, out of the car, and march up those steps. The late afternoon sun stung her eyes as Greg helped her from the limo. Ahead, the green dock door opened, and two men, equally as unkempt as Marco, walked onto the dock. Marco, wearing the sunglasses again, threw the keys to them. DK, get rid of the driver and the river. In the limo in Jersey, 
said the taller guy with stringy blonde hair and a green t-shirt. Just get your asses out of here. They jumped from the dock and went back to the limo as Caroline climbed the steps. Seconds later, the engine turned over and the car raised a dust trail away from the dock. Chapter 29 Marco, both guns squarely in his hands, pushed them inside the darkened hallway. He dragged the sunglasses onto his head. As her eyes adjusted to the residual glare, Caroline held on to Greg and could not stop thinking about Marco blowing apart the driver's head. He brought them through a series of storage bins and into a school corridor with very little light. Greg pointed to one of the classrooms. Seems like a bad dream, doesn't it? Shadows of the way it used to be. They moved into the dim light near the second floor stairs and into the main corridor. Marco slowed before reaching the new offices and shoved them both into the gym corridor. Greg held her all the way down the long, dark hallway. Caroline figured they were in the last few minutes of their lives. Marco bashed open the wire mesh doors and twisted around inside the abandoned lobby. He opened the gym doors himself and motioned them inside. Again, welcome. All your moments of glory, Gregory, right in here. Greg remained silent, shielding Caroline from the loaded guns. They were forced across the dusty wood floor and through stagnant, chemical-laden air. She looked with increasing suspicion toward the peeled-back floorboards and trench. Greg stepped forward. Just what the hell is going on here? The cement is ready. It's mixed and ready to be poured, pro-boy. It's also very simple. You're going to have a new place of residence under the hoop, Greg, forever. <laughs> the afternoon light cast a surrealistic glow over the storage barrels, desks, and chairs. Caroline remembered she had come over here with Ben 25 years ago and watched Greg play high school basketball. In front of the hoop, a red and black basketball jersey lay on the floor next to a red, white, and blue basketball. Greg shouted at him again. Just kill us now. We don't want to participate in your little sick games, Marco. Oh, the party is just beginning, my old friend. Put on the jersey, Greg. A little warm-up before the main event. Marco, please, just let us go. Oh, don't worry, lovely lady. I won't leave you out of this. You can root for your hometown hero as he sinks the ball through the net and shows us his winning style. Just do as he says, Lina. Yes, Lina, do as he says. Greg bounced the ball, but the gym storage barrels muffled the sound. Even when faced with death, the moves came natural to him as he dribbled and popped the ball through the net. Marco had both weapons in his hands and would eagerly use them. She stood at the top of the key. Happy now, Marco? Oh, this is just as I dreamed it would be. <laughs> Atta boy, Greg. Swish him for the old team. You're sick, Marco. Sick. Marco took a few steps toward Caroline. Oh, lovely lady, you're not enjoying the performance. Look at him. The man can't miss. Let's hear some cheering. Come on. Caroline looked at Greg and he nodded. Maybe he had something else in mind. She began a half-hearted cheer, forcing Marco from her thoughts. 
but she noticed as she jumped into the air, Marco lustfully watched her jeans. Maybe she could distract him as Greg kept shooting. What are you looking at? I'm looking at your tight ass, lovely lady. That's what you always wanted, wasn't it, Marco? The thought had crossed my mind a few times over the past 25 years. She put her hands on her hips and slightly spread her legs on the floor. Greg kept dribbling and shooting. Caroline maintained the same position, but turned so Marco had a full view of her buttocks. To add to his excitement, she slowly bent over toward the floor until the fabric tightened over her hips. Then she looked up through her legs. How's that, Marco? That's what I like. He started toward her, but through her legs she saw Greg unleash the basketball with an unusual fury through the air. With a quick smack, Marco's head snapped. The glasses spun across the wood floor and he went down quickly. Run, Lina! Greg took her hand and she sprinted away. They scrambled down the court, but Marco somehow held onto the guns and fired wildly. Before they reached the lobby doors, one of the bullets hit a metal storage container, producing a minor explosion in flames. Greg ran across the lobby and slammed his body into the outside plywood boards, but bounced back to the floor. Then he kicked and pushed as more shots sounded inside. On his feet, Marco moved toward the lobby doors. As Greg turned, the floor rumbled and a bright flash appeared toward the gym. He caught his balance and they started down the corridor toward the wire mesh doors. A mass of smoky air and debris gushed from the gym. Maybe the explosion got him, Greg, shouted Caroline. He held her hand and they ran through the morgue-like corridors. Let's just get out of here. She turned at the corner and pointed as Marco staggered into the lobby, dazed and coughing, but alive. He assumed a firing stance. Bullets ricocheted off the lockers and he ran after them down the corridor. More rounds tore up the floor and plaster walls. At the corner, as they ran into the main corridor and sprinted toward the new gray office door, Marco's taunting grew louder as he approached. More bullets hit the walls. Greg yanked at the doorknob. Then he pounded with both hands. This thing is locked. Open up! Open up! It's all over now, shouted Marco from down the corridor. Greg pulled her toward another set of wire mesh doors and they scampered up to the second floor staircase. A few scattered light rays pierced the plywood cracks as she leaped up the worn slate stairs. Once at the top, gunfire tore apart the lower corridor. Caroline threw her arms around Greg. Down the end! Down the end! To the back staircase! Some of the loose plywood in the windows brightened the upper corridor. They ran past hundreds of gray lockers, but Greg suddenly stopped. We're right above the gym corridor. Greg, we can't stop. He ripped off his tuxedo and tie. Then he rubbed his chin. Marco knows this school just like I do. He's very clever. He expects us to go down that staircase and back to the first floor. As they slid into the darker corridor, Greg grabbed a discarded chair in one of the classroom stacks and broke it over his thigh. He held one of the legs and gave the other one to Caroline. Then he pointed to a barely visible stairwell leading to the gym lobby doors ahead. He held her hand and felt his way along the lockers and walls, but as they got closer, smoky air oozed up the stairwell. Bright orange flames reflected on the walls from the first floor. Damn, this place is on fire. He kicked open the doors. Caroline felt her arms and clothes grow immediately hot, and smoke entered her lungs. He yanked her back 
and they both grasped for air. We know, she said, still trying to get air. Greg, he'll come up to the second floor the same way we did. He studied something down the corridor. I have an idea. Come on. Ahead in the low light, another thin layer of gray haze lingered over the murky corridor. Greg led her to a pile of textbooks near an open classroom. Take a few of these, he said, placing several hardcover books under her arm. We're going back to the rotunda stairs and lure him out. Greg, the man is armed. We have no choice. I'm not waiting around till he comes up here. Then he motioned her forward with his head. In a few seconds, the mesh doors were visible and smoke spewed below. Greg signaled with his index finger over his mouth for Caroline to remain quiet. He backed against the mesh doors and hurled his book stash down the stairwell. Moving shadows appeared on the mustard tile wall below. Greg had a fierce look in his eyes and the chair leg in his hand as he slipped along the metal banister. The shadows grew larger up the tiles and he vaulted the banister. Caroline ran forward as Greg viciously swung the wooden club and smacked Marco down to the first flight. Marco fired, cutting up the tiles, but Greg scrambled up the stairs, grabbed her hand, and returned to the front corridor on the second floor. He dragged her into one of the side classrooms. There's an attic to this school and a trap door. I know there was. Greg, this whole place is going to go up like a tinderbox. We can't hide in the attic. He studied the ceiling. She heard nothing outside. The boys' room. That's where it was. The boys' room. He checked the corridor, and then they slinked along the wall through the smoke. Quickly, they climbed the stairs to the third floor. Greg pushed the boys' room's translucent door open with his foot. A thin veil of window light illuminated rows of white hoppers. Greg gazed up to the wood trap door in the plaster ceiling, but it had no rope cord. He lifted her into the air, and she instinctively pulled the large white door open. He then reached up and extended the staircase, and they climbed to safety. Greg, he's going to figure it out. He pulled the stairs back up, and everything went black. There has to be an opening where the clock tower used to be, directly above the rotunda. Then I think we can get outside. My God, we're three floors up. Greg located light cracks in the roof. I estimate we're near the far wall above the main entrance columns. She coughed as the smoke seeped into the upper area. Okay, I'm going to break the damn thing down. Light cut the darkness about midway down the attic as a set of doors crashed open. Greg pushed her behind a stack of boxes. Silhouetted in the light haze, Marco draped the rifles over his shoulders. Greg squeezed her hand and they remained crunched behind the boxes. Marco unloaded rounds across the attic. Bullets moved like water from an oscillating sprinkler, splintering the roof boards. Caroline held on to Greg as a silence settled over the gunpowder-laden air. Boots against the attic floor followed the click of ammunition clips being reloaded into a rifle. She tried to control her breathing as her heart pounded against Greg's chest. Marco passed like a ghost within ten feet of the boxes. The sound of boots faded in a wide loop back to the other side. Caroline peered over the box. Smoke from the fire that Marco had so recklessly started in the gym now crept through the attic rafters. She fought the urge to cough. Marco grumbled and then shouted, God damn you, Greg! Where are you? 
Choking in the rising smoke, he pushed through the attic entrance and disappeared below. Caroline whispered to Greg, Now what do we do? Greg studied the flickering firelight on the wood boards. He shook his head. We might not be able to go downstairs. This is spreading fast. Well, he's down there and he'll be waiting. Maybe, maybe not. Greg exhaled and then pointed to the red ladder near a huge stucco central chimney. The roof. Well, how will we get down? This building is three floors, Greg. He held her shoulders as cracking sounds spread across the attic. If we go downstairs, you're right. He'll be waiting. I say we get up on the roof and head up front. By now, the fire department will be there and they can get us down. Okay. He took her hand and led her to the ladder. She moved up first through the upper rafters. The smoke thickened up top and she began coughing. Greg slid next to her and pushed on the upper reinforced wood hatch. He jiggled the outer edges, but it would not budge. You're a dead man, Greg, shouted Marco from below. More bullets shredded the rafters. Damn. He hurled his shoulder against the hatch and repeated the maneuver several times until he dislodged the wood frame. Then he thrust his body up the remaining rungs and flipped the hatch open. It crashed onto the slate roof and a misty wind swept into the stuffy attic air. Escaping onto the roof with Marco closer might be their only option. Chapter 30 A thin watery spray hung in the fog and the sun. The valley and the river merged into miles of rolling green hills and deepening black-layered clouds formed a line just over the sun perched on the horizon. Although a narrow walkway surrounded the chimney, the slate roof pitched down at an extraordinary angle. Caroline froze as more shots cracked below. Greg slammed the hatch closed. He grabbed her back and steered her onto the slippery chimney runway. As she gripped the shaky, rotted balustrade, fire flares engulfed the gym roof. Belching dark smoke and brilliant orange flames shot out the side windows. Lighter smoke rippled over the wood gutters like wispy fingers into the humid air. Greg led her around the massive yellow brick chimney. She shuffled, but as they reached the front, she gasped when she saw the roof pitch on either side. The wet wind hit her hard enough so she grabbed the balustrade's unsteady rail. How do we get to the front? We're going to have to shimmy along the top. Jesus, God. Greg, that drop is too steep, not in the storm. Her breathing soon spun out of control. Something exploded beyond the gym and a fireball tumbled upward. Caroline, listen. On your knees and straddle the roof. I'll hold you from the back. He moved behind her as her heart pounded and she edged her way into the projected sunlight emerging from the cloud bank below. She had advanced at least 25 feet when more shots echoed across the slate tiles. He's up here! He's up here, Greg! Bullets now ricocheted off the roof in rapid succession. Marco assumed a position in an air conditioning unit angled behind the chimney. The backdrop of smoke and flames obscured the mountains to the north of Reedsville. More bullets pinged the roof. The chimney is the only thing protecting us, cried Greg. Go forward. I'll slip. This roof is too slick. We have no choice. Greg trailed behind her as she edged forward. 
With his right hand on her ribs, he guided her along the top of the former Paul Revere High School. Several times, wind gusts threatened to send her down the slate-tiled slope. A few tiles to her left splinted with the bullets, and then three shots echoed from all directions. He can't reach us from this angle. A pale yellow sun dipped behind the progressing cloud mass. The cooling wind accompanied the low-hanging thick clouds, and rain pelted her face. Water sheets meandered down the tiles and over the gutters. For several minutes, no firearms were discharged. She half-turned when Greg cried out. His right shoulder erupted in blood. Keep moving. I'm okay. Keep moving. More tiles split as she nudged along the peak. The gunfire continued as the wind caused her to dig her fingernails into the tiles. Greg shouted from behind and then tumbled down the tiles. For a second, the shot stopped. Then Marco laughed from the air conditioning unit. Greg's body flipped on the edge of a skylight and disappeared through the broken glass. Now it's your turn to die, lovely lady. Three quick shots hit the roof tiles. The rain and wind pummeled her body as she slid onto her belly. To her right, trees whipped in the storm. Greg hoisted himself up over the edge of the skylight. Caroline, you need to slide down the roof to me. The water droplets formed rivulets down her cheeks. I can't. Marco fired again, but hit nothing. The orange glow sunlight popped through the clouds and encircled her. Just slide down, I'll catch you. What if I miss the skylight? She screamed into the next wind gust. He's coming forward. You have to slide down. Behind her, Marco, with guns strapped over his shoulders, steadied himself on the chimney walkway. Greg, his arms outstretched, kept yelling. Slowly, she aligned her saturated clothing toward the skylight. With her fingers curled around the ragged slate tile edges, she pulled herself away from the top. Tile by tile, she started down the gargantuan slope. Greg balanced in the night air less than 50 feet away. He crawled under the tiles and extended his hands. He's aiming! Slide! Slide! Greg crawled out of the skylight as she moved faster, but she lost control and tumbled forward. Her body hydroplaned across the slate and veered to the left as Marco fired. A bullet smashed a tile near her left ear. Greg reached to his right and grabbed her wrist. Then they both whipped past the skylight as more bullets bounced off the roof. They neared the wood gutters and the straight fall to the ground below. In the heavier rain, Greg kicked his foot into the gutter, halting the fall. Marco screamed incoherently as he fired the rifle and missed again. Across the valley, clouds fell over the sun and a cool darkness descended on the roof. The whine of an engine preceded an extended fire ladder rising into the rain. A huge man in a black coat and a fireman's hat stood at the top rung of the ladder. Below, a crowd had gathered around a sea of flashing yellow and red lights. More fire trucks and police cruisers on the high school hill surrounded the old Paul Revere High School. The ladder neared the edge. One shot rang out across the roof, hitting the fireman and knocking him off the ladder. The crowd gasped below. Greg gripped her wrist with both hands and pulled her upward as if he were a lifeguard, rescuing her from deep ocean waters. She saw the broken skylight further up the roof. Somebody opened fire from the ground, but Marco continued his barrage. Greg dragged her upward and over the opening. She fell forward, braced herself, but hit the floor hard. 
Rain pounded through the open skylight as he lifted her up. He took her hand and they dodged several fallen easels and stacked tables. She followed Greg into the hall, but as they ran back toward the boys' room, flames had taken over the third-floor corridor. He shielded his eyes and they veered toward the front hall. The old faculty room and the rotunda stairwell doors were to the left. Greg kicked open the doors, but Marco appeared behind them and began shooting. They escaped into the stairwell, but smoke rose up from the second floor. Caroline coughed uncontrollably as they waded through the smoke down to the second floor. The stairs to the first floor were obscured by opaque black billowing smoke that burst out the massive stairwell window. Marco had descended the back stairwell and stood in the corridor with both rifles strapped over his shoulders. A slow smile tapered up his cheek. So it all comes down to this, lovely lady. As he took her arm, Greg yanked her from behind the stairwell doors. Marco fired several rounds, destroying the stairwell plaster. Greg, he has us. He has us. He picked up one of the plaster chunks and winged it at Marco. Blood erupted from Marco's forehead as his body catapulted to the floor. Greg grabbed Caroline's hand and thrust her across the corridor into a second-floor classroom. He careened over old desk chairs and boxes. Marco, lurking somewhere outside, screamed up at them. Where are you, college boy? I can't play the waiting game. See who gets burned alive first? Greg pushed her down to the open air pocket just above the floor. He slithered across to the next classroom, but when he pushed open the door, a mass of smoke, flames, and heat sent him back. Marco continued to challenge them from the corridor as denser smoke jets spewed into the room. Now they were trapped between Marco and the encroaching fire. Greg scrambled to the plywood, his face beaded with sweat as he pounded the wood, pushing and prodding each sheet. Marco yelled just outside the room. Greg secured her against a row of boxes. As the heat intensified, timbers cracked in the distance, and the entire structure itself shook. A prodigious crash emanated from the gym area, and she envisioned the whole building collapsing upon itself into a giant fireball. We have to go back to the main corridor, Caroline. Even Greg now coughed as her clothes heated her skin. In the darkness ahead, an advancing orange glimmer now glowed within the overhanging smoke. He guided her under the distinct glare of compacted air. He swiveled across the dusty floor and away from the fire. With another crash, a wave of cinders, ash, and smoke gushed into the corridor. The searing flames provided the only illumination now as she sucked in the remaining fresh air into her smoke-scraped throat. Out of the smoky blaze, as if he had emerged from the netherworld, Marco St. Germain materialized with one rifle in his sooty hands. With a gouge cut over his left temple and eye socket, he still maintained the cocky reassurance of a hunter set for the kill. You're late, superstar. Greg held her tightly as he turned. They were backed against the rear wall with the stairwell acting like a chimney, raising smoke upward. Caroline choked as Greg swaggered forward. Go ahead, Marco, kill us, because you're not getting out of here either. The floor below them rolled, and the other end of the corridor collapsed. Our ashes will be the ashes of Paul Revere High School. First you will go, and then the lovely lady.
but as he prattled, the building shook like a city-leveling earthquake. He lost his balance as the floor pitched upward. Greg and Caroline both backtracked at a tilted angle toward the rotunda wall. Marco fired the gun and bullets whizzed by her head and into the wall. She watched on her knees as the second-floor corridor buckled and split at the far end, forming an ear-deafening crack advancing forward. Flames leaped from the ever-widening gulf, and Marco struggled to stay on his feet. The fissure slowly spread open, and for a few seconds, Marco's torso seemed suspended above the inferno. Even at the last moment, his dark eyes locked onto her as he reached toward her. With nothing left to grasp, he abandoned all hope and vanished backwards into the flames. No! No, not yet! Kill them! Kill them! Greg punched and kicked through the newly constructed wall over the old rotunda, creating an opening large enough to squeeze through. They leaped through the wood supports, free-falling through the suspended ceiling before they smashed against the solid floor seconds later. They were inside one of the new offices. The fire truck lights flashed red and blue across a mass of people gathered behind the yellow plastic tape in the parking lot. Greg took her hand and they moved through the front door. The influx of air sucked into the building and threw them back for a moment. Then they staggered onto the granite steps. The crowd, mesmerized by the flames, did not even seem to notice as they backed down the steps. She breathed the fresh air furiously as the dusky glow lighted the houses along the hill. Still backing up, they crossed the parking lot. The gym and the middle building were enveloped in a brilliant mass of rising sparks as the timbers fell into the flames. Only the girders remained. The front building, where they had been trapped, had caved in and burned rapidly toward the front offices. The heat followed them as they ran onto the high school hill road. Sue's red convertible approached and she slowed. The fire reflected in her intense eyes as she stopped. Caroline, holding Greg, wanted to leave and never return. Greg shielded his eyes as Sue gazed toward the fire and then turned toward Caroline. Her youthful appearance transcended into a wrinkled skin mass, and her hair whitened as her darkened eyes intensified. Sue and the car slowly faded from view as flames flickered on the houses. Caroline never looked back as they hiked downward. When they later reached the old green arch bridge, she noted hundreds of tiny flame ripples reflected across the ever-moving Emmitsburg River. The high school hill and the town itself were encapsulated in an eerie iridescence that reflected a pink-gray light on the low-hanging clouds. Six twenty-two p.m., December twentieth, nineteen ninety-two. The past followed Greg like a haunting spirit, inundating and controlling his life. His bizarre outbursts and vague references to his youth in Pennsylvania were now making Caroline uneasy. He rambled, gestured wildly, and referred to things he had never mentioned ever.
beginning this nightmare all over again clarifies a clear eternal definition of hell. In its original form, the book established justice for Greg and Caroline. By placing the never-ending repetition of Greg's story, I wanted to posit a different point of view. Yes, Greg's life was irreparably changed by the accident, but should he have been able to achieve his goals without the basketball career? The answer is yes, and not merely getting justice as a springboard for the rest of his life. And so it begins again and again and again. Thanks for listening to my book, The River of Fate. Next week we'll be soaring into deep space with the Nebula Planet, part of the Galactic Command series. I'm Robert P. Fitton, flying high into the wild blue yonder, reaching Mark 1. See you next time. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.